because the bushmeat demand is very high, especially in China, it would still be a challenge for any species population in this protected area as well as any other habitats in Laos. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today in episode 72 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Aktu Rasbom from the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford. She'll talk with us about her five-year study, which found that improvised snares have completely decimated the wild tiger population population in Laos, a species whose worldwide population is now estimated to be just 200 animals. Here's Aktu Raspone. Hi, my name is Aktu San Raspone, and people call me Aktu. I was born in Savannakhet province, which is six hours south of Vientiane, the capital of Laos. I did my bachelor degree in geographic information system in Australia. And then I did master in geographical sciences at the National University of Australia. Then I went on and did postgraduate diploma in international wildlife conservation practice at the University of Oxford. I did my PhD in zoology, which my topic focused on intragill interactions of carnivores. In northern Laos. As part of her work as a senior conservationist and biodiversity monitoring expert with Oxford's Wildlife Conservation Unit, Aktu carries out field research in the mountains of Laos, specifically within the Namit Pului National Protected Area, or NEPL for short. So Ryan and I started out our conversation by asking her to tell us more about her homeland, as well as where her research is situated within it. Laos or Lao PDR, Lao People Democratic Republic, is located in Southeast Asia, in the Chinese region. And it's surrounded by China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar. So it's a landlocked country, and it's quite mountainous. The capital city is called Vientiane, and the population of Laos is about 7 million people. So Laos has 18 provinces and is very mountainous. It has a very mountainous landscape in the north of Laos. And we have overall 24 protected areas, uh, national protected areas, not counting the provincial protected areas or district protected area. Most of the large uh, protected areas are along the border between Laos and Vietnam. The protected areas of Laos, it's uh, spread out from the north to the south. And NEPL, or the full name is called Nam At Pulei National Protected Area, is one of the largest protected areas in Laos. It has the area of about 5,900 square kilometers, covering three provinces known as Huapan Long Prabang and Siang Kuang. It is located in the northern highlands of Laos and it shares the border in the northern part with Vietnam. The elevation range from 400 to about 2,200 meters 
and the habitat is dominated by dry evergreen and semi evergreen forest. So the area itself is divided into two zones. So they have a core zone or total protected zone and the managed use zones where um, livelihood activities are permitted following the national protected area regulations. And the characteristic of this national protected area in Laos is quite different from a lot of uh, other places in a way that there's still some people living inside the protected area. So the livelihood of the villagers in, in the area includes gathering forest products, shifting cultivations, uh, livestock raising, and also hunting, but subsistence hunting using like traditional tools, traditional methods. Snares have been used throughout the ages to trap wild animals. Traditionally, subsistence hunters in the NEPL have made their snares from rattan and other natural products that are prone to decomposing relatively quickly. On the other hand, contemporary commercial poachers more often use the brake cables of motorbikes and bicycles, which, obviously, remain dangerous for much, much longer. So Doug and I were eager for Actu to help us understand what drives this illegal commerce. Illegal hunting mainly is done by snaring. Snaring is very easy to set out. It's very cheap. They can set many out in the forest. So one of the things is that they don't discriminate any type of species. So any mammals going through the snares would be caught. And so it's quite deadly for a lot of species. And sometimes we, we got them on our trip. If we found some, we would take them out. My teams would take them out. And sometimes they may target larger species, like tigers. But even that type of snare is caught other types of species, other types of mammals. So poachers will put their hands on every single piece or every single animals they can get from the area. Because the bushmeat demand is very high, especially in China, it would still be a challenge for any species population in this protected area as well as any other habitats in Laos. If it's small mammals, we get to see sometimes in certain markets. But large cats, we don't see it being sold in Laos. It usually gets sent to Vietnam and probably the end market is in China because of this high demand in tiger parts and also for other cat species as traditional medicine. The NEPL has been widely regarded for its diverse community of carnivores. For instance, just a decade ago, it was noted as being an important site for tiger conservation in Southeast Asia. But so long as poaching remains financially lucrative, there's only so much that legislation and law enforcement can do to quash it. So Ryan and I were interested in learning what Akchu thinks might be the key to solving the region's problem with snaring and poaching. This particular protected area is co-managed by Wildlife Conservation Society and the government counterpart, which is we have the protected area management unit. But 
there's always some turnover in law enforcement staff members. Some would get trained and then moved on, and then we have another one. So the turnover rate is quite high. And then the change in law enforcement strategy is also defined by the availability of financial resources. There's certain years that funding has become very limited so that we have to adjust the enforcement strategy to reflect the funding situation. But primarily, law enforcement is targeting to keep people out of the core zone area. That area should not have anyone going in there. And whether that that's going to be poachers or any other kind of illegal activities. So that's the main purpose. The NEPL is a remote region in northern Laos, and the terrain there is quite rugged. So Doug and I were curious to hear how Akchu and her team went about accessing the region for this research. NEPL has an office in a small district in Huapan province. So when I did my research, my collaboration, I, I collaborated with the Wildlife Conservation Society and their office is in Vientian. So I moved from the capital city to, to get to Huapan, which involved driving 12 hours to get to that Hiem district, it's called. And there's a, an office, the National Protected Area office there. So we would go there and we arranged everything, equipment and everything there. And then we would set off to go to the field, which we would have a car arranged to drop us off at, depending on which area we're going in. Either it's going to be the nearest village or the nearest entry to the park. And then we just started walking. But I feel quite safe in there. It's not very scary at all. Being attacked by animals is the last thing I, I would think about. I was more worried about running into poachers, illegal poachers, because the type of research that I did, it's uh, involving camera trapping. Normally, we would go out for 15 days to 18 days. We would pack everything with us, food, camera traps, our camping gear. We sleep on hammocks. Me and my team, uh, 16 guys, we would go out and then split up into four teams. And each of us would be in there for 15 days or so. So if, if the camera trap locations where we want to go and set up is very nearby to the spot where we picked for camping. Then we would stay at the camp for two days, maybe, and then move. But sometimes we had to move our camp every single day. According to Robert Pete from Cornell University, biodiversity has two components, the richness of species and their evenness. As she and her team employed this distinction in interpreting their findings, Brian and I asked Ak Chu to tell us more about this idea. When we talk about species richness, we're looking at the type of species, so different species, how many different species are there in the region or in the area. But when you talk about even species evenness, you talk about 
the size of the populations or the distribution of the species population. So we use the dynamic community model, which was developed by Dr. Mark Carey. Uh, he's one of the co-authors of of my paper. So the dynamic community model is a form of occupancy modeling, which we look at, like the percentage of the species that occupy the area. So it looks at the occupancy rate, looking at the rate of which the species occupy the area. So this model is also known as the um, multi-species occupancy model, or dynamic multi-species occupancy model, which is written in Bayesian statistical framework. So the classical statistics we call it frequentist statistics look at probabilities. Or hypothesis testing, but there's another statistical framework which is Bayesian statistical framework, and with this one, with Bayesian statistical framework, the advantage of this is that when you have a small pool of data, Bayesian statistical framework is of advantage. Archaeologists may use material culture as their evidence. Biologists assays, and social psychologists questionnaires. But in Actu's research, she and her team use photographic evidence to document the population density of identifiable species present in the NEPL. As she explains after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, the Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to passing science. Here again is Actu Radspon. For this research, we use infrared camera traps, which is automatic cameras. So. With infrared camera traps, they would trigger when there's movement and there's heat that pass in front of the cameras, depending on the models of the camera. So we use, I think, three different models of cameras, and at each location we would put two camera traps at one location or so one station, and that's because we want to study population density of identifiable species, meaning the species that we can identify individuals based on their patterns. For example, clouded leopards or tigers. So they have distinctive patterns. So you can actually tell them apart. You can tell if this one is different from the other one. So with two camera traps, um, you can get both sides of the animal. For example, you have a trail, and then you have one camera on the left side and one camera on the the right side of the trail, but they they would be a little bit not directly pointing at each other, but a little bit off. That's also to ensure that if one camera missed, then the other one would still have a chance to to get the photo. Also, to avoid if there's a flash, if both cameras going off at the same time. Then 
the flash might have affected the photos. You know, you would have this white area, and that will decrease the quality of the image. As she just described, Akchu and her team collected their data through camera traps. Brian and I followed up by asking her how she went about determining where to locate the cameras so that they stood the best chance of capturing the nocturnal movements of the last Laotian tigers. The camera traps is designed systematically, so we have a specific spacing between each location. So normally, when we we determine the sampling block, we look at the previous records of the species in the area. Of mainly carnivores because I was then targeting clouded leopards and medium-sized carnivores, and I looked at the threats level, which I used the patrol data or law enforcement data to inform the threats density within the area, and then the cameras will be spread out evenly. Yeah, systematically, like evenly. So when I say systematic, it's when I say, okay, within this space, I want eighty camera trap locations, and I want each location to be apart from the other location, one point five kilometer. So we have like eighty locations at one point five kilometer spacing. So this use as a guidance to to get to the location. So you don't really know what is there in reality yet when you have this sampling block planned out. So when we actually go there to the let's say location number one, we use our GPS to guide us to get there. And when it get closer, we can actually assess whether or not that location is appropriate to to put the camera traps. Is there a place to put the camera trap? So we search around the location. It has to be within, you know, two hundred, four hundred meters of the proposed location. So if it's like on the cliff, then we have to move it a little bit. Each of Akchu's automated photographic surveys lasted for a minimum of fifty days. But despite being in a national protected area, Doug and I figured that at least some of those cameras would have to have been stolen or destroyed. Maybe by poachers, maybe by locals, or maybe even by the wildlife that they were deployed to document. We asked Akchu just how prevalent this kind of thing is when collecting data remotely in the forest of Laos. So the setting up would take maybe ten, fifteen days, or maybe more, and then the camera traps would be left in the forest for up to fifty days, or a little bit more, or a little bit less, but. Ideally, our target was to leave the cameras in for 50 days for certain assumptions. So, in our population modeling, we have a closure assumption where we assume that there's no population movements happening within our survey period. So that's why we have to limit the number of days when the camera should be out. And so we would leave the cameras out for 50 days. And then we would go back and pick them up, but not all of them were there. We would expect at least ten cameras to be stolen or broken. So in some areas, there are very small number of cameras stolen, but in some of the blocks, a lot of them got stolen. 
this is quite common in this type of research, especially in the area where there are people living in there, and there are also a lot of poachers and illegal activities inside. If you've got a video doorbell, you're probably familiar with the many false positives that they alert you to. Mine, for instance, has a special affinity for seeing a human face in a cluster of tree branches just beyond the front door. So, given the many images that must have come from the thousands of days that Akchu's cameras spent collectively gathering data, Brian and I figured that there must have been many such images to wade through, and wondered how she went about doing so. So after we retrieved the camera traps, we would download all the photos, and then, usually in the rainy season, we would go through the images and identify which species we see in the photo. We also look at how many we see in the photo and then we um, organize them for our analysis later. So apart from looking at identifying the species, we also identify individuals for those species that have distinctive patterns. So it's uh, you're looking at some months of work. That's probably the the hardest part not the hard it's not physically hard but it's the tedious part of the research it's interesting also right you get to see all these beautiful images but at the same time it's also a lot a lot of work to go through all those images and sometimes you look through all these downloaded photos and sometimes your camera just triggers because of the wind and then there's like thousands of images of nothing but you just you can't skip them because you never know maybe within a split second something actually went past the front of the camera so you might miss something so you kind of have to stare at those images for a long long time some for some images that i'm not very um that I'm not very sure about the species. You know, there only certain part of the body got taken or or it's a bit blurry. I would send them out to some experts to help me identify them. With 120 to 160 cameras taking pictures every time they were triggered for 50 days or more, Akchu and her team did indeed end up with lots of pictures, about 10,000 labeled images from this study alone. So Doug and I were interested in hearing how she and her team turned all this raw data into information that they could use in modeling the prevalence of the various species in the NEPL. So even though I have 10,000 images, those 10,000 images are divided into species, different species, right? And then sometimes with the images, we have to break them up into independent events. So meaning that the shot I took, let's say four species that you cannot identify individuals. So like a barking deer, for example. So with this species, it's very hard to tell if the picture that I take now is different from the other one I take five minutes later. So when we prepare the data, we try to define independent event based on the group of images that are taking 30 minutes apart. So if they are 30 minutes apart, 
So let me give you this example. At my first camera trap location on the 1st of March, for example, I get the images of, of a wild pig. And then I would have like maybe five images, right? Within that 30 minutes of wild pig. And that is just one independent event. But if there are a different species walking past within that first 30 minutes, that's another independent event because it's not the same species. So that means even if you have 10,000 images, you still have one data point. Like you still have fewer data points when you break them up like that. Across the 32,000 nights that they spent outdoors in the field, Octu's cameras captured nearly 10,000 independent encounters of wildlife. And from these records, they detected 43 different species of animals. But neither tigers nor leopards were photographed after the 14 times that they were captured in 2013, the first year of their survey. This led Octu to conclude that the species has effectively been extirpated in Laos, which is a scientific way of saying that they've been completely wiped out, as she explains next. So the 14 events, they're only from two tigers, right? We would get them in a few different locations, but maybe in one location, there are a few shots of a single tiger. So when we actually look at their patterns, we were able to tell that there are two different tigers, one male and one female. Then the following years, we didn't get any. It was a huge reduction. So our assumption was that if they are still in the area, and I mean these species, if they are there, they are ready to be photographed. So these two tigers were the same individuals that were trapped in 2009, but I was not able to compare with any other photographs that were recorded um, during Johnson's time. So Dr. Arlene Johnson, she was at the time the country director of Wildlife Conservation Society Lao program. And I started working with Wildlife Conservation Society in late 2005. So that was the time she was the director. She started the systematic camera trapping to look at the tiger population in the area. But definitely, there were a lot more records than compared to when I started my research. Despite all of this, Doug and I were curious what hope Akchu might have for the future of big cats in the Nam Epului National Protected Area. The pattern here, as much as I like to look at it in the, in, in the ecological context, it's um, also influenced by human factors, which is the poaching. But we found that uh, some of the prey species are still quite widely distributed, but tigers are not there. So prey depletion, especially large prey, may have played the role in the disappearing of tigers, but the major issue here is illegal hunting for trade. So these findings from my studies should be taken as a lessons learned and also as information or guidance to where we are 
at this stage in terms of our biodiversity. And despite the big cats are likely to be extirpated from the area, we still have a lot of other species that represent the diversity of carnivores and mammals and other prey species in this area. And those species should not be neglected. And I believe that if we are able to conserve or to protect this area, to be free from threats, we can bring the condition of the area to be back to where it was 10, 20 years ago and would still be a good site for supporting carnivore populations. And perhaps, who knows, maybe one day tigers wandering back there from somewhere and it could also be a suitable habitat, although we don't have tigers there. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible to bring the population back to the area, as long as we can keep the area safe. That was Akchu Resborn discussing her article, Documenting the Demise of Tiger and Leopard and the Status of Other Carnivores and Prey in Lao PDR's Most Prized Protected Area, Namet Pului, published in October 2019 with Mark Carey, Jan Kamler, and David McDonald in the journal Global Ecology and Conservation. You'll find a link to their open access paper at parsingscience.org e72, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. We hope that Parsing Science helps you hear what you might not have the time to read. And if you're new to the show or just missed a few of our recent episodes, then head over to parsingscience.org to check out our entire catalog. There, you'll find our conversation with our guests from the previous episode, Veronica Seviano, who spoke with us about why it is that we treat different animal species so differently, as well as the episode before that, in which we spoke with Jeremy Gunawardna about the idea that even prehistoric single-celled organisms can be taught to learn new tricks. Next time in episode 73 of Parsing Science, we'll hear from Courtney Kogenauer and Jennifer Farr from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, about their research into what differentiates the likelihood that drivers in their cars will yield to pedestrians of different races and genders. Looking at the make and model of the car from the video, and then using the Kelly Blue Book to get an estimated value of the car. And then from there, we did the statistical analysis to see if, in fact, it was true, if People who drove more expensive cars were less likely to yield for pedestrians who were attempting to cross the street. We hope that you'll join us again.